altar with this inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Randy, fool with the knobs till this thing quits ringing, will you? <laughs> Which knob? <laughs> Never mind, Randy, don't fool with the knob. <laughs> it could definitely get worse. That it is right now. <laughs> we test and test this thing out before we get up here, and then, we, and then it still doesn't sound right after we do. Okay, that's getting better. Thank you. Daryl and I wanted to, wanted to talk to you this morning about where the church is going. We wanted to just share with you the uniqueness of this particular congregation and what we believe God is calling this congregation to. Now, neither of us could do that alone because we are, total, we are, we are jointly responsible for leadership. Our gifts complement one another. We are not the same people. And so he will have a different tilt on it than I will, but we are going in the same direction and we see clearly that God is calling us in the same direction. Therefore, let me talk to you a little bit about the dreams and, and he'll talk a little bit more about the directions. I guess what I want to say to you this morning is just, I want to simply tell you about the three people that most influenced my life before I became a Christian. One's name was Max Bayshore. And the outstanding thing about Max Bayshore was he was absolutely the best storyteller I'd ever heard in my life. He was probably the best in the whole world. None of you have ever heard of Max Bayshore, I'm sure. His work was not that of public speaking, but he was, a, he was a salesman for a large oil company. But Max Bayshore probably knew more jokes than any other single living human being. And every time he'd walk into a room, the first words out of his mouth were, say, have you heard the one about? And when he said those words, he was like E.F. Hutton. Everybody just stopped talking and listened to Max Bayshore. Now, most of Max's stories weren't very clean. Max was, Max had, he was a traveling salesman. He had a lot of stories about traveling salesmen. Max was a very worldly fella, but he was an absolute delight. And even if you were one of the most, how do I want to say this? One of the most God-fearing people, still there was part of you that wanted to hear that story from Max Bayshore because you knew you'd end up not laughing because we God-fearers can't laugh at dirty stories, but just going out of the room because your insides were about to come out. Just the way he told the story. He had a lot of other things going for him. He was a tremendous father, a tremendous husband. He was terribly loyal to his family and to his friends. He was a good worker. But the gift of Max Bayshore was that he loved to see people laugh, and he could make them laugh and enjoy themselves probably better than anybody I'd ever seen. He could make you forget your troubles no matter what your troubles were. And when Max Bayshore went into a group of people, that group of people immediately pulled together as a group. And they forgot their animosities toward one another. Then there was Gene Ovens. Gene's gift was that of singing. She had one of the most marvelous, deep, rich alto voices you'd ever want to hear. The fact is that probably after she reached a certain age, probably there were only a few of us who ever heard her sing. She sang a lot when she was growing up. This was back in the big band era, and she sang with bands and so on and so forth in places that most of us would not go. But she loved to sing. One time she sang with Tommy Dorsey. She was real proud of that. Sang on the radio. Very proud of that. But she had a beautiful voice. Jean had another gift. It was the gift of making whoever she formed a relationship with feel like a king or a queen. She could make you feel like the most important person in the world and not just feel it, but believe it. I never got to talk to her much when, when I was growing up because she had a full-time job and she had a million things to do trying to keep her family together. 
her husband had died. But I never had the first doubt in my mind that in her eyes, I was special. I was special. She made me feel like a king. And to this day, I feel special. I guess she was the self-esteem person before self-esteem ever came into vogue. She was a lovely mother and, and, and uh, a good neighbor and all of those other things. But she could make you feel like you were 10 feet tall, even if you were only 5 feet 6. And then there was Doc Bayshore. Doc was a naturalist. He was the original Yule Gibbons. Uh, he was a veterinarian. He not only, not only worked on animals, but loved animals, had this deep relationship, this kind of natural inclination. There were two things that he could do, and that was relate to kids and relate to animals. And I used to watch him as he'd sit on his front porch and he'd coax a squirrel down out of the tree. He'd make these little sounds with his, with his throat and he'd coax that squirrel down and hold a peanut out and that squirrel would just come up and pick, up that, pick out that peanut out of his hand. And as I watched him do that, he'd tell me all about squirrels and how they interrelated with other animals or didn't interrelate with other animals and what their habits were and all of that kind of stuff. Tremendous gifted person with animals and kids. Didn't like crowds. Didn't like crowds. But, but people respected him. And they respected him in the fact that when he was sitting out on his porch, all the neighborhood kids would be around watching him play with those animals and explain to them about God's creatures. Now, all of these people had gifts, but they also had something else in common. They were wonderful, loyal people. But they weren't church people. When you ask them if they'd like to go to church, they'd say, nah, you know, I, 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 just, I just don't want to go. And you'd, you'd press a little further, say, well, why not? Say, well, they'd say, well, I'm just, I'm just not a church person. I'm different than they are. I'm just a regular person. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. But those church people are just different than I am. I like to have a good time. You know, I'm a normal person. I'm afraid if I went to church, I'd embarrass somebody or I'd embarrass myself. I'm afraid that they'd look at me like I wasn't one of them. So for all of their lives, these people stayed out of church. And for all of their lives, they were denied the essence of knowing who they believed in. They were denied scriptural knowledge. They were denied a personal relationship where you felt the Holy Spirit lead you in everyday life. They were denied that. And ironically enough, it was the church that stood in the way. And not only were they denied that, but the church was denied them. I wonder what would have happened if Max could have come to church and gone to any church fellowship function. I wonder what would have happened to that function. No, I don't wonder. I know what would have happened. Immediate fellowship, because that was his gift, you see. I wonder what would have happened if Jean could have sung in a church choir. She never would have because she didn't feel worthy, but I wonder what would have happened, not only to the church choir, but to Jean. I wonder if she wouldn't have launched in the swing low sweet chariot when she hung her line out, rather than stardust memories. I wonder what a witness that would have been in her neighborhood. And I wonder about Doc Bayshore. If he couldn't have come down some Mount Auburn Super Saturday and been surrounded by 70 kids, I wonder if he couldn't have taken them out in the front yard and coaxed a squirrel down from the tree and explained to all of those kids all about God's creatures and how God had made them and then told them about Noah's Ark realistically and about how the animals must have 
been taken care of or how they could put some animals together and they couldn't put other animals together and watch those kids for the first time see Noah's Ark from a veterinarian standpoint. But I know these people never would have gone to a traditional church. I know these people never would have gone to a fundamentalist church that made them feel low because they already were a little touchy about that. I know they never would have gone to a Pentecostal church because the first time you raise your hands beside somebody like that, they're thinking, oh boy, what have I gotten myself into? But I know they were smart enough not to go to a dead church either. Just your traditional, dry, stick in the mouth, never mention God or don't make him come alive. Don't don't ever mention that God is a real person kind of church. They wouldn't have wasted their time on that. What church could they go to? Do you know of a church that lets you be yourself, but also lets you become God's person? Do you know of a church that will let your gifts glorify God in the way they are rewarding to other people? I think I do. I think this is that church. I don't think I've ever been in a church where that was as much of a possibility as it is right here. The other side of that is how many Maxes and Jeans and Docs do you know? The Maxes and the Jeans and the Docs of my life are gone, but I keep running into others out and about. People who are hungry to use the gifts God has given them but never would think of the church as a place to do it. How free are you to approach those people and say, I know a place I think you'd like and a place I know would like you. This is a place. And my dream is that someday, with all of their flaws and all of their uncertainties, all the maxes and genes and docs in this whole territory, will be able to come here and feel accepted and feel needed for who they are and for what God's given them to share. One of the neat things about feeling needed is that you can develop those talents and and there's a minister on our staff (laughs) that is very good at that. I'm kind of the dreamer, but Daryl has always had a gift of step-by-step development. I'm basically a shallow person. (laughs) Daryl is deep. You know, he has a burden on his heart for discipleship and development. And so it's for him to come now and to share his direction of what would happen to do, what we would do if we got genes and maxes and docks into the church. I'm going to talk over here simply because this is where I feel most comfortable. But I've appreciated that you folks at Mount Auburn not only can welcome other people into the community, but you've welcomed me. I still feel that I'm on, a, on an emotional and a spiritual high being a part of the staff here at Mount Auburn. It's such a great privilege for me to share and and to be one of your pastors. I've never seen a church that had such a willingness to reach out into the community with open arms in the name of Jesus Christ. It's a tremendous attitude that you have. But yet it can be very painful at times. Because of your willingness to reach out, it means at times you're going to have to sacrifice some of your own preferences. Because of your willingness to to reach out to other people, sometimes it means you're going to be inconvenienced. And almost every time we reach out, we find that it's going to be a very expensive process. We've seen because of the rapid growth that we've experienced that we've had to add more staff, and as we do this, we add more program, and as we do this, we need more building to take place. All of this costs. It costs time. It costs energy. It costs money. 
But reaching out to others is a ministry, and even though it's not an easy, easy ministry, it's one that we've chosen to do. You as a congregation keep saying, this is what we believe God is calling us to do. Let's go ahead and do it. As we think about some of the great things that are taking place in this congregation, I think all of us realize that it's not of our own doing. It's not just because of us or who we are. What is taking place in this congregation is happening because God has been at work in a very powerful way. What God is doing here is a demonstration of what God desires to do in every congregation. To reach out and welcome people. But then after they are welcomed and after they feel a part of the congregation, that they can grow and mature and develop in their Christian faith. Now, Over the past few weeks in the Bible study series and, and in our Sunday morning sermons, we, we've been talking about God's will and about His timing. And what we've basically been trying to say is that from God's perspective, He deals more with the rightness of time than He does calendar time or time on the calendar. When the time is right, when the conditions are ready, then we will see God working in a variety of different ways. What's happening here is a demonstration of God's God's working when the time was right. Now, one of the things that God did when the conditions were right was that he sent J.C. here as pastor. J.C. does have the gift of evangelism. He has the rare ability of making people feel welcome, uncomfortable, not only in a worship service like this, but as people come and have questions about their own relationship with God, J.C. can help them to see that God welcomes them with open arms. Now that's so important today because so many people feel that God hates them, that God is out to get them, and that, that because of their shortcomings in their life, that God doesn't want anything to do with them. So he has the ability to welcome people. I hope you realize how fortunate you are to have a person like J.C. as pastor. I think his key strength, as I've worked with him, is the fact that he has a deep personal relationship with God. He kids about being a shallow person, but he's not. He has a deep walk with God. He loves the church. He loves people. He works hard. And yet, even with all of this, he's still a human being. There are a few times he makes mistakes. No. <laughs> no, that's not true. Don't listen to me. Let, let me tell about one. <laughs> Recently, someone asked J.C. out to dinner. And it was a, there was some confusion about the date, and there was a death in the congregation, and, and so there were a lot of things taking place all at once. And as a result of this, J.C. missed the dinner. Now, a lot of pastors could have said, well, you know, I'm so busy, I have such a hectic schedule, there are all these different things happening, I'm sure people will understand, and, and he could have made a lot of good excuses for that, but J.C. didn't. He called the people, and when they talked a little bit, he just felt so bad that he had missed that opportunity, and as a result of that, he couldn't sleep that night. That's the type of love and concern that he has for this church and for you. J.C. is a great Christian, and he's a great friend. I love working with him. And yet part of the enjoyment of working together is the realization that our gifts are different. As he mentioned, my major gift is in the area of discipleship. Once people have come into that relationship with Jesus Christ where they have accepted him as Savior, what I feel that I can do best is to help people to grow in their relationship with God. As we were talking, I came across a, a passage of Scripture that, that I think summarizes the two parts of our dream for this church. Reading now from the book of Ephesians. Some of us have been given the very special ability as apostles. To others, he has given the ability of being able to preach well. Some have the special ability of winning people to Christ. 
helping them to trust him as Savior. And I believe that's J.C. Still others have the gift for caring for God's people as a shepherd does his sheep, leading and teaching them in the ways of God. And that's where I believe God is leading me. But then the scripture goes on to say, why is it that he gives us these special abilities to do certain things? It is so that God's people will be equipped to do a better work for him. Building up the church, the body of Christ, to a position of strength and maturity. Until finally we all believe alike about our salvation and our Savior, God's Son. And become full grown in the Lord. Yes, to the point of being filled full with Christ. J.C. and I both see our ministry as one of being caring for you and teaching you and instructing you in the ways of God. But there are different ways of doing this. The scripture says that God gives some people the ability to do some things good and the ability to other people to do other things good. And the purpose for this is to equip the saints so that they can go out and work for him. I see my ministry as an equipping ministry. Now, I love being able to preach. It's a great thrill to be able to share the good news of Christ in the sermon format. It's been very helpful for me to, to sit in worship services and be a part of that. But what really gets me excited is when I can sit down with a handful of people, maybe six or eight or ten or fifteen people, and just be able to sit down together and say, what's the Lord been doing in your life? What struggles are you facing now? How has God been blessing you and your family in my own spiritual life and development? It's come mainly through small group experiences where people have come to know and support me and hold me accountable as a Christian. You see, it's always been too easy for me just to hide in the congregation or in a large group or in a worship service. It's always been so easy for me to sit back and not take the message personally. So it's from my perspective that it's so important to be a part of a Sunday school class, a small group Bible study, or a sharing group. That's an essential part of our Christian growth. At least from my perspective, this is where God has become so real to me. I'm not saying forget about worship service so you can be a part of a small group. But neither am I saying forget about a small group so that you can be a part of the worship experience. We need both. In worship, we can corporately worship and praise God. But it's in the smaller groups that we get to know one another, that we can build relationships with one another. We can help one another to build a relationship with God. That's an important part of our church and for our future. I guess my dream for this church is that we would have an ever-growing number of small groups that would meet together for the purpose of helping one another grow as Christians. Now, as this happens, God is going to be leading some of you not only to take part in these groups, but he's going to be leading some of you to take leadership positions in these groups. JC or myself or another staff member, we're not always going to be available to lead these type of groups. But that's okay. For some of the best experiences that I've had is when there's been a dedicated layperson that's come in and said, this is how God is working in my life. And let's look together at the scripture. In that passage in Ephesians, we are told that God has given different gifts to different people to help the body to grow and mature. And the ultimate goal of this process is that we might be filled full with Christ. That's the desire for my own life, that I would be filled full of Jesus Christ. And that's what I want for this congregation. 
that we as individuals would be filled with Christ and His love and His power. And it's only as we are filled full with Christ that we can be and do all that God has called us to be. We're very fortunate on our staff to have Tim Hoover and his wife, Rita. For God has blessed them with another gift, a gift of music and ministering to us through music. So we'll ask them to come now and share with us. about be in prayer please during these times of silence would you say a special prayer for the person that is on your right side that is on your left side. Would you pray for yourself? I went back there and I looked and I go, they're gone. You guys had them back there all the time, didn't you? Um, let's, let's go ahead and take, take the offering now so that uh, those of you who have just come for the Bible study service. Oh, yeah, we'll, we'll turn them off after that. Yeah, I remember now. Those of you who have just come for the Bible study service can uh, contribute to the Lord. We know that this is... This is a. Uh, this doesn't lend itself to the holiness of the act of consecrating your life to God, doing this during informal moments. But we hope that you'll concentrate on what you're doing, and realize that does go to the betterment of the kingdom, and that's a holy act. Let me go ahead and, and reannounce to some of you, and announce to some of you for the first time the announcements for the morning. We are. We want to to. Uh, have a blood drive here. We we have done this regularly as a church and have kind of let down lately. I don't think we've had one for like nine months or something like that, which is is uh, 
terrible of us. So we're going to have a blood drive in November. Please stop by the tables in the hall and sign up. Secondly, do is Dan Fisher here? Do we need cookies and stuff for that? Does anybody know? Okay, okay. If you would bake cookies for that, put a C, all right, by your name. Pass the registration sheets and put a C by your name, all right, as you do that. We would appreciate your help. Okay, we'll have them do that next service too, uh, Nancy. Okay. Secondly, those there are many of you, or there are some of you, who have asked uh, um, about starting a memorial fund for Walter Wooster. Walter Wooster was for a long time Mr. Mount Auburn. <laughs> he was just he was one of the finest people uh, uh, I had known and took a very active part in the leadership of this congregation. He was our lay delegate to annual conference and that put him on just about every board uh, um, and committee in the church and he was very faithful and very concerned about the church. He really poured a lot of himself into this church and it would be appropriate if we could remember him uh, somehow through a memorial service. If you, or a memorial uh, fund, if you want to uh, give something to that, just mark it appropriately and put it in the plate. Uh, some of the rest of you might also want to inquire about giving a memorial uh, in memory of someone else, and we'd be glad to talk to you about that. Next week starts our time change. Now, before you throw rocks and tomatoes and all of this kind of stuff, for moving you back to 9 o'clock, how dare you? This is the Bible study. We had a choice, and we opted in favor of the people who... Uh, do not know as much about the Lord and are not as committed to the following of the Lord. Uh, to, to give them the avenue of convenience rather than you. Because we assume that you have become stronger and more discipled in your coming to Bible study. And that if sacrifices are to be made, the church ought to be the one to make the sacrifices. The Christians ought to be able to make the sacrifices for the non-Christians. So therefore, instead of putting the uh, uh, Bible study at the 11 o'clock hour where it would have been easier for you to come to that we're putting it back to the 9 o'clock hour we know that will inconvenience some of you but please remember you're being inconvenienced for someone else not for the church but for those who might come to an 11 o'clock service because they can't get their kids ready and all that kind of stuff uh, okay um, there's also change in, in traffic direction this week and next week, starting next week, on Sunday morning, we're going to make that east drive the end drive and this west drive the out drive, okay? So as you exit through the west drive, if you're going to go east, get in the left lane. If you're going to go west, get in the right lane, if you would. And that will make things much more convenient. We realize that putting worship services back to back, we are going to have traffic problems. We hope we have traffic problems. Um, so please, if you keep that in mind, we could just keep that going in a circular direction. We think that'll relieve some of the congestion. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's coming from that. I don't know. Um, two? Two. Um, anyhow, that's the kind of song that my Uncle Max and my mom, Gene Ovens, and my granddad, Doc Bashore, would have loved. Yeah, I mean, they would have loved that. They were kind of jazzy people anyhow. They kind of stood around like this all the time anyhow. Okay. Let's uh, turn to, if uh, uh, you would please, to the fourth chapter of Exodus. We're going to go through the process that God used to deliver his people but there are some of these things that I specifically want you to understand and I guess the first thing I want you to understand comes in the fourth chapter in the 21st verse this is only one example of, of how the Bible says that God works that sometimes is confusing to us God said and I will harden his heart the first thing 
we want to know when we read something like that. In some passages in the Bible, it says that the Lord caused a disease to come upon them, or the Lord caused this to come upon them, or that to come upon them. And it seems like it is a prolonged period of suffering because something God, because of something God has done, and not because uh, they truly deserved it. This is something we need to make clear because it is a kind of a blemish on the character of God in our minds. In the first place, in the Hebrew language back then, uh, or when this was recorded, there what they did not have, it was not sophisticated enough to, to record the difference between primary and secondary causation. They, they wrote the same words for both. That is to say, this would be an example. Say, uh, uh, and this, this actually happened, I think, in the 50s, there was a sock, uh, one of the sock vaccines got contaminated, and there were some people who were uh, made very sick by that vaccination. Um, now, in our recording of that incident, we would, we would say that this, the vaccine was, was somehow contaminated, and, um, and uh, because of that, some people were made sick and so on and so forth. In the Hebrews' way of putting that, they would have said, Jonas Salk made a vaccine that made people sick. All right? So in their way of recording that, even though that is true, it's not quite accurate. So therefore, when it says that sometimes in the Bible that God caused this to happen to people, they take that incident and they record it because they attributed everything to God. All right? there was ve there's very little about Satan in the Old Testament. If something happened, they attributed it to God. Not God's permissive will, but God's active will. And therefore, there are some things that don't quite compute that we read in the Old, we read in the Old Testament. Therefore, when, you know, when you're reading the Old Testament, remember that. There wasn't the sophistication in that kind of recording experience to enable them to differentiate between primary and secondary causation. The other thing that we need to, to point out here is that God respects a person's decision so that if Pharaoh hardened his heart as it says just as many times in here as it, did, as it says God hardened his heart one of, the, one of the ways that the Hebrews would look upon that is that God confirmed Pharaoh in his hardness of heart alright <clears throat> Jesus said when he was um, talking one time that it is not, or the Gospel of John says, that God didn't come in to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved, but they who have not believed have been condemned already. That is, God has confirmed what they have decided. God respects our decision. If he didn't respect our decision, free will would not make any sense. It would all be some sort of gain. So anyhow, I want to point that out to you, because that's a question a lot of people have. Also, uh, when it says the Lord sought to kill him, evidently, uh, when he came to, when he was going to Egypt, he had some sort of terrible, horrible experience. You know, some, I don't know what happened. Uh, either he had some sort of attack or some camel fell over and almost fell on him or something happened, you know. But he, he saw that as a sign from God. And, and it probably was a sign from God, but I'm not sure that the Lord could attempt to kill somebody and not succeed at it. So I think, I think what, we're, what we're saying here is that people are reading into the circumstances a movement of God, and because of that, God's will is accomplished. Whether or not that is God's actual will or not uh, is left to, to us to find out when we get to heaven. Um, so he was obedient to God, circumcised, and... and, and the 24th through the 26th verse there, it, it, I get the impression uh, that his wife is just not real hot on this whole, on this whole thing here. She, she was abhorred by the fact that he would cut his son's foreskins off, you know. And after that, we don't read of her anymore. So she might have gotten mad and turned around and gone home. Um, 
But anyhow, that is that, is that incident. Uh, he knew that to proclaim the word of God with power, we must ourselves be obedient. People look at us and see if we have any integrity at all. One of the reasons that Doc Basior never went to church is because he looked at me in one day and he said, I can be as good a Christian as all those hypocrites at church can. And I've heard, I know you've had that said to you before. What he was saying was that he expected people who acted perfectly on Sunday to act perfectly on Monday. And so it became a stumbling block to him when his expectations were too high for them to meet. Uh, to meet. Um, uh, to proclaim with power the word of God, we must be obedient. And if we're not, we're going to be a stumbling block to people. Okay, and then uh, uh, one of the other principles um, that you need to know in your own spiritual life is that practically every time you make a decision to follow God, things are going to get worse before they get better. Now, I don't know why that is. Some people say that the Satan, you know, is attacking and becoming active because you weren't as big a threat to him before. Now that you're a, a new threat, he's going he's gonna to do everything he can to dissuade you from following through on that, on that decision. I could go for that. <laughs> I could go for that. But whether or not that is the accurate case, I know from person after person after person talking to me that when they have made a, a decision to follow the Lord, their lives, instead of getting better immediately, have gotten harder. And that is disturbing to them. Here they are, you know, saying, boy, this is what God's wanted all along, and now it's tougher to live instead of easier to live? Yeah, that's the way it gets. That's the way it gets sometimes. Sometimes it gets tougher because those circumstances just happen to, to, to come about. Sometimes it gets tougher because it is much tougher to live as a Christian than it is a non-Christian. I mean, it just is. You can go out and do anything you want as a non-Christian, and you don't have to worry about it except for the natural consequences that will, that will happen to you. You don't have the guilt and all that kind of stuff. When you become a Christian, there are a lot of things you did before that you wonder about now. And so it's a lot more difficult to live as a Christian. So one of the principles you need, to be, you need to remember is when you make a spiritual climb or a spiritual, uh, uh, what do you want, spurt, spiritual spurt in your life, <clears throat> please don't be surprised when things get worse instead of better right away. It won't stay that way forever, but that will be uh, a temptation in your life and that will be a stumbling block to you Okay, then let's hurry on ahead because I, I really want to talk about Passover quite a bit today. Um, the reasons that God exercised these acts of judgment were two, and you can see them in 6-7 and 7-5. Number one was because he wanted the believers to learn the character of God. Just because you believe in God does not, know you, does not mean you know his character. That's what I was preaching about this morning. These three people in my life believed in God, but they did not know who he was. He did, they, did, they weren't sure of his character. One of the things that, that Daryl was talking about this morning, you know, so many people believe God hate them. God hates them. That's not his character. And so Israel was... was, was I think, suffering under, under the disbelief that because God had not done anything for them for 400 years, that God was not interested in them. And one of the reasons for the mighty acts of God was to convince them just how interested God was in them and how far he would go to complete his purpose in them. And, of course, the other uh, uh, thing is that he wanted the unbelievers. And we will see later on that Egyptians begin to believe in the Lord because of what he's done in those miracles. So he wanted to introduce his character, the character that is able to produce deliverance for people. And if I don't say that again this morning, because I get all wrapped up in Passover and all the rest of this stuff, let me say it right now. There are a lot of you, there are a lot of us. Let me correct that. All of us are in bondage this morning to something. Now, I don't know what it is. It's all different. But I know all of us are in bondage to something. There is something in our lives that holds us back. 
that makes us afraid. There is something that makes us lose our faith. There is something that, that chains us and would not let us be free. <clears throat> the central message of this passage is that God is able, able to deliver his people. And he is able to do whatever is necessary to deliver his people. When you entrust yourself to God, trust him to deliver you from that. Whatever is keeping you in bondage this morning, put that in God's hands, will you? And trust him to deliver you from that. Follow him. All right, that's what the children of Israel had to do. Follow him. Stick together. Hold on to one another's hands as you go along the path. But trust him because he is able to deliver his people just as much now as he was 2,000 years ago, and he's able to deliver us from our mental chains just as he was able to deliver them from their physical chains. Okay, let's talk about the plagues. The first thing that you need to know was that the first nine plagues were intensifications of natural disasters that were not unfamiliar to the territory. Every one of those things probably had happened before in Egypt. The things that made them miracles is that they happened and stopped at the command of Moses. The other thing you need to realize, and, and I'll talk about this as we go down through the list, is that practically all of the miracles aimed at some Egyptian deity. God was trying to teach the Egyptians that, the Je that Jehovah was stronger than the gods that they worshipped. And even when, even when there are not major gods involved, they, they worship nature. Uh, they were, you know, that's part of our primitive experience. That's part of where we came from as a civilization, nature worship. And so when God had nature in his hand, uh, when he could control nature through Moses, then he was trying to prove to them that he was God indeed. All right, let's talk about, one by one, these, these, uh, where are we here? These plagues. The first plague was for Moses to go and change the Nile to blood. Now the Nile was a god to the Egyptians. They worshiped the river. The river gave them their livelihood. That's what, that's what that the, the washed up silt onto the shore so that they could plant and reap and all of that kind of stuff. But they had gods, imaged gods to the Nile. And it probably is the case that when Pharaoh went down to the Nile, it was for some sort of worship ceremony. He wasn't just going down to the Nile just to look at the river. And the Bible says that Pharaoh went down to the Nile one day and Moses met him there. And the Bible says that Moses turned the river to blood, but that the Egyptian magicians could do that also. Now, every <clears throat> July through September, the Nile is in a flood or was in a flood period. And what happens is that the the uh, uh, Mountains, uh, some of these mountains, I can't remember the name of the mountains, in Ethiopia just begin to, to melt and the floodwaters come down and it washes up to the surface this red clay. There are bits of clay in the surface. Uh, and it looks very much like blood. Now it was not unusual for them to see a river look, looking like blood. So therefore, you know, it's not like uh, you see the Ten, you ever see the Ten Commandments, the movie where he just touches his rod and the whole thing spreads like crazy. <gasps> you know, it, it probably wasn't like that. But what made this different is number one, it happened at the command of Moses. Number two, when, even when the, when the, when the, uh, uh, the waters were, were um, flooding with that clay material in them, it was still drinkable to the Egyptians. I mean, they didn't have to go all that time without water. This water was not. It was bitter. They couldn't drink it. And number three, 
it lasted only until Moses told it to stop. In usual flood period, it lasts from two to three months. But in this particular case, Moses uh, commanded it to stop and it stopped, okay? So that's why the other Egyptian magicians probably could produce the same effect because it was a natural disaster, disaster and by some co sort of trickery you could force that red clay to the surface. But yet it was a miracle because that was a definite interruption in natural processes. But as usual, God gives us the choice as to whether or not we're going to believe it for a miracle. If you tend toward the natural disaster side, you can just say, ah, how about that? Which, which Pharaoh did. Uh, isn't that unusual? If you tend to look through the eyes of faith, you will recognize it for what it is, and that's a miracle. Okay, number two. The, the plague of the frogs. Frogs were also a deity, believe it or not. They had frog shrines. Uh, the, the Nile was a deity. Frogs were a deity. And, so, and this was not unusual at the period of a flood to have frogs spreading all over the place. But the intensification, again, was different. And the, the, the abatement of the plague as the, at, at the word of Moses was different. In other words, God could control that foreign deity. He could abolish that foreign deity at will. The next one, gnats or mosquitoes. Now, I don't think these gnats or mosquitoes was were a deity. They, go, they went pretty low in frogs. I don't think they went uh, low enough that gnats and mosquitoes were. But again, we have probably the outburst of a flooded area. You know, swampy areas tend to breed. Uh, there's, the reason it's gnats or mosquitoes is because there's two different translations, and, and you just you don't know. Uh, but it tends to be swampy and, and breed that kind of infestation, and so, so that also was tied in with flood. And the Egyptians uh, by this time are starting to say, well, I'm not sure we can pull that one off. There is something different about this. There is the finger of God. Nobody can tell the finger of God faster than a magician because a magician can spot a trick. And so they started to believe, the magicians were the first ones to begin to believe that this was an act of God. Pharaoh didn't. He wouldn't even listen to them. Okay, then we go to flies. And by this time, Goshen, the land of Goshen, where these people are living, are starting to become exempt from the plague. Now the reason that, that the Israelites also had to endure some of the first plagues was because God had to teach them a lesson too. God had to remind them of his power so that they would follow Moses out and they would be able to stand in awe of God. When the Bible says to fear God, that's what the Bible is talking about. There is an element of fear, but mostly it's awe that produces obedience. And so what God was trying to do here was he was trying to produce enough fear and or, or awe into heart, human hearts that he, they would, they would uh, um, uh, be constrained to follow him and keep following him after they got out into the wilderness. We'll talk about that a little later on, though. Um, uh, I have a green mark after the flies. Why do I have a green mark after the flies? Um, green mark after the flies. Oh yeah, at this point, Pharaoh is saying, okay, I'm convinced a little bit, all right? Why don't you take your men out to this place, but leave your women and children and belongings with us? Pharaoh starts to bargain. This is always the way of the world, you know? If they can't get everything, they'll start to say, okay, let's make a deal. And this is Pharaoh's version of let's make a deal. Now, Pharaoh had a point, because at that time, the people who indulged in valid worship for the Hebrews were the men. I mean, the women weren't allowed into the inner court or close to the shrines, and of course, the children couldn't. So he was saying to them, hey, you don't need these people. 
Why do you want to take them out there? But he was also thinking in the back of his mind, number one, if they've got some people out there waiting in order to come back and attack Egypt, they're not going to attack Egypt with their, with their women and children here. Number two, if they're going to simply run away, we will still have these women and children to rear as a source of labor and power for Egypt. And number three, we'll still be, we'll still be rich because the Hebrews did have some belongings. Later on, it, it talks about the destruction of cattle. That's the next one. And the Hebrews did have cattle and so on and so forth. And so, um, you know, Pharaoh's playing pretty smart here. He's saying, hey, I'll give you what you want. All you got to do is compromise at this point. And, of course, Moses would not compromise. All right, the destruction of cattle. Cattle are also Hebrew gods. One of the reasons that they had to leave in order to sacrifice the way that Jehovah told them to sacrifice that was traditional in Hebrew, in Hebrew uh, worship was because they said, we will be offensive to the Egyptians and they will treat us harsher. And the reason that they would be offensive is because they had to sacrifice animals that the Egyptians thought of as deities. It'd be like us going over and offering a Hindu a hamburger. You know, it just doesn't work. Or us saying, uh, let's, uh, um, um, you know, sacrifice, a, you know, a, a, a calf, you know, on behalf of God over in India right now. Um, that could be somebody's grandmother. You know, that just isn't, you know, I heard, I went to this, I went to this, uh, uh, conference on international uh, hunger one time and, and this one guy went and he was just so furious and he said I'm not even going to talk about hunger in India they got all these animals running around if I get hungry I want to just kill them and eat them and he just could not imagine why that would be dearer to them you know that would be like killing your grandmother and eating your grandmother and you can you know, but he just he wouldn't he wouldn't hear of it. He wasn't even going to talk about it. He wasn't going to cut him any slack. Uh, just didn't understand that. So anyhow, that's what the Hebrews are going through right now. We do not want to offend you. We know that our worship will offend you, and that's why we got to go out to this mountain. In addition to the fact that God told us to go out there. Um, okay. Then the boils, um, the destruction of the cattle. By the way, were not waged upon the Hebrews. This is this is uh, uh, thought to be some sort of cattle disease that would not spread to cattle that were separate from from the other cattle that were not mingled with the other cattle which with the, which the Hebrews cattle would not be um, some sort of uh, I'm trying to think of anthrax some, some sort of something like that there's also a human form of that that they call scab and something or other disease and uh, they, they believe that that might have been partly what that was about um, uh, but the Egyptians or the Hebrews didn't get it. And then hail and fire. It is not unusual for, or it, it is unusual, but it is not unknown for there to be hailstorms with lightning in the, uh, in the country of Egypt. What started to become unique, though, is that the Hebrews began to believe, I mean, the Egyptians began to believe the Hebrews. And the Egyptians that believed brought their animals in so that they would not be hurt. The Egyptians that did not believe left their animals out and their animals were destroyed. And then the locusts. Um, this, of course, is a, uh, a natural event. You have seen pictures, I'm sure, when you were growing up in school of, of uh, uh, plagues of locusts and, and these are most, uh, most often uh, developed in the country of Syria, and all it would, would have taken was a good wind, a good consistent wind to sweep them up into Egypt, and, and uh, that could have uh, very well um, happened. Again, it did not infest where the Hebrews were living. And then darkness, uh, the, they also worshiped the sun god. And... Uh, um, um, let me see, I'm trying to remember what I was going to say about this. This Hampson is a, is a sandstorm that can last up to three days that becomes so terrific and so intense that it literally blocks out the sun. 
and they believe that that's more what that was rather than an, than an eclipse um, or than, a, than an eclipse um, they believe that there, it was that kind of a tremendous sandstorm that really uh, that really affected uh, those people okay now let's talk about the last plague This is important. Oh, I've got <laughs> I always do this. Why do I do this? Ah! We've got three minutes to talk about Passover, you guys. Uh, so much of our symbolism comes from this act and this act of deliverance. Wherein people were required to trust the instructions of God, even though it probably would not make any sense to them. And there's a lot in here that you miss when you're just reading it. In the first place, it starts to talk about the angel of darkness or the angel of death or something like that. In other words, it differentiates between God and the cause of death or between God as the, as the, as the offensive cause of, of death. And it, and it starts to give different personalities to those spiritual things that can happen to us. In the second place that in Hebrew language it's it, it's not just uh, putting blood on your doorpost so that the angel of death will pass over there is a real sense in which in which the language talks about God indwelling the household and protecting the household from within so it's not it's, it's, there's a whole different theology here uh, between what you could understand. One is that God is fierce and he's going to come down and you're going to have to do something to protect yourself from him. And the other is the theology in which if you trust in his instructions and the blood of that which he has provided, he will come into your household and protect you from within from that which would seek to harm you otherwise. It is in this second sense that we can understand the blood of Jesus Christ. There are some people that just plain do not understand why Jesus had to die on the cross and why his blood had to be shed in order for God to forgive us. But you need to remember where people were in the history of mankind and how important the whole rehearsal of the Passover had been to the Hebrew nation. You need to remember that for every year, for, for thousands of years, people had been talking about the time that God protected them from death because of the blood of the lamb that was what they sacrificed the lamb and so when Jesus Christ came into the, this world not as a lion but as a lamb and when his blood was shed it was a natural conversion from the old Hebrew understanding to the new Christian understanding for those that would believe. Now, not all Hebrews believed. And we, we talked about that. Somebody asked a good question in Bible study Tuesday. Why didn't the Jews believe? When they were waiting for Jesus Christ, why didn't they believe in him? Well, we'll talk about that a little later on. I can't tell you. I haven't got time right now because we're, we're running out of it. But we need to, to um, concentrate on the fact that the blood of Jesus symbolically and spiritually does protect us from that which would kill us spiritually. It does pull us together from an indwelling of his spirit and it does wash away and symbolize God's acceptance of us and leadership of us out of bondage. Um, Hebrews 9.22 says without blood there is no forgiveness that's how they understood it 
without sacrifice, without that symbol of life. Because that's what blood, blood was. It was the symbol of life. That's why the Hebrews couldn't eat anything with blood in it. Because they would be eating somebody's life. But, but that symbol of life, that God's life was shed for us. There is no forgiveness of sins. Okay. Um, questions? Yes. Okay. Um, the plagues lasted approximately, if, 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 if it makes sense, if the seasons make sense in the Bible, the plagues lasted for about six months because they would, they would uh, I mean, the, I'm talking about the totality of the plagues here. They started, if, if we're talking about the river flooding, in July, and then there is a reference to these uh, certain plants and certain animals being used, and these plants are not, they are not uh, uh, really ripe or ready to be harvested until January or February. So that's approximately in that early part of the spring was when this last plague, the Passover, happened. And the Hebrews, I mean the Jews to this day, celebrate Passover in the early part of the spring. So approximately six or seven months. Any other questions? All right, let's, let's say a prayer before we leave today, shall we? Father, we just pause in order to thank you for communicating these words to us so that we could trust in you. There are some here who have never really accepted your Son as Lord and Savior. Let them put his blood on the doorposts of their hearts. Let them call him Savior and accept him as Lord. And, and be submissive to his leadership. There are others of us who have gone through that step and are in bondage to other things that only you know about. We ask you to lead us out of that bondage because you did not create people to be slaves. You created people to be free and to be healthy and to be loving. So help us with these items of bondage that we know about and you know about. And help us to come out of our individual bondages as a group, as a church family to worship you and hear you. In Jesus' name.